Coronary revascularization is the bread and butter of modern cardiology practice, and it gets new guidelines. These were jointly issued by the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, and the SKY, and they were also reviewed by the American Association for Thoracic Surgery. The guideline document recently published less than a month ago in JAK and in circulation simultaneously. It's noteworthy that these are the first guidelines on the topic in 10 years. Several trials were published in the same period. This long-weighted document comes to replace or retire five guidelines, partially or totally. Not only the 2011 PCI and CABG guidelines, but it will also replace and modify sections in STEMI guidelines, in ACS guidelines, in stable ischemic heart disease guidelines. So this is a document that you should not miss. Hello, this is Hussein Hishmet. I'm an interventional cardiologist and professor of cardiology, and welcome to my podcast. I will try to summarize the 109 pages guidelines on coronary revascularization. For ease and convenience, I divided the guidelines into six sections that I will cover over the coming few episodes. The sections represent my own view of the logical flow of patients during their journey of revascularization. The first section will be on the indications of revascularization in different clinical situations. The second section will be focused on the choice between PCI and cabbage. The third section will be on the optimal performance of PCI. The fourth section on the optimal performance of cabbage. The last two sections, one will be on the medical management post-revascularization. And the last section will be on organizing the service, patient-centered care, and other regulatory issues. So let's get started. So let's go to the first section, the indications of revascularization. And this is the basic question that the physician has to answer. Does this patient need medical therapy or revascularization? I'll be discussing seven situations where revascularization may be indicated. ST elevation MI, non-ST elevation acute coronary syndrome, stable ischemic heart disease, ventricular arrhythmia, revascularization prior to non-cardiac surgery, revascularization during pregnancy, and the indications of revascularization in spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Acute coronary syndromes represent the solid indication for coronary revascularization, and ST elevation MI is in the top of that. So let's start by ST elevation MI. For patients who present within 12 hours of symptom onset, PCI as a primary strategy, primary PCI, is class 1A, provided the patient presents to a healthcare system where the wire can cross the lesion within 120 minutes from first medical contact. Nothing is new here. How about patients who present between 12 and 24 hours of symptom onset? Primary PCI is still highly indicated if the patient is shocked or has any other complication. Even in apparently stable patients between 12 and 24 hours, PCI is mostly beneficial. It gets class 2A. In patients who didn't have primary PCI for any reason and who were treated by thrombolytic therapy, routine PCI between 3 and 24 hours post-thrombolysis is class 2A, even in apparently uncomplicated situations. 
There's however one situation in ST elevation MI where PCI is not recommended. Patients who present after 24 hours of symptom onset, who are asymptomatic and without evidence of heart failure or severe ischemia, and angiography reveals total occlusion of the infarct-related artery. PCI here is class 3. It's most likely to be of no benefit or even harmful. And what we used to think before about the open artery hypothesis is simply finished. How about patients with multivessel disease and what to do about the non-culprit vessel? The non-culprit vessel gets class 1A for angioplasty if it is done in a staged manner in hemodynamically stable patients, not during the index PCI. At the time of PCI, PCI of the non-culprit vessel is downgraded to class 2B and is allowed only or preferred only in hemodynamically stable patients with low complexity of the coronary vessels. In patients with cardiogenic shock, PCI of the non-culprit vessel is considered now harmful. It increases the risk of death and renal failure, so therefore it should not be done routinely. It's class 3. This is a vital point to consider. This is a change from what we used to practice before. Initially, we used to try to revascularize everything in patients in cardiogenic shock. Later on, we came to realize that this is harmful and it should be avoided in most situations. PCI to the non-culprit vessel should be deferred to another encounter, preferably during the same hospitalization. For non-ST elevation acute coronary syndromes, a routine invasive approach is associated with improved outcome. So these patients should mostly be treated by an invasive approach, not conservative. The benefits of an invasive approach are mostly pronounced among the higher risk patients. And the higher the risk, the earlier the procedure should be performed. And we have three time benchmarks. For patients who are in shock or hemodynamic instability or recurrent ischemia or ventricular arrhythmia, then angiography should be immediate. In high-risk patients, those who have biomarker elevation or a GRACE score more than 140, then angiography should be performed within 24 hours. For intermediate-risk patients or low-risk patients, angiography is still indicated and it's better to be performed before hospital discharge, somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. For patients with multivessel disease and cardiogenic shock, the same concept of PCI to the infarct-related artery or the culprit vessel only and deferring non-culprit vessels to a staged procedure applies here as it applies to ST elevation MI with cardiogenic shock. Stable ischemic heart disease. The tide had turned in this indication after the results of the courage the Orbita and the Ischemia trials. The conclusion of all these trials that medical therapy is equivalent to revascularization in stable ischemic heart disease. Therefore, the threshold for revascularization should be much higher in, ischem in stable ischemic heart disease compared to STEMI and ACS. And medical therapy should be the dominant strategy in stable ischemic heart disease. Revascularization in stable ischemic heart disease theoretically has three aims. Improving the symptoms of angina, improving survival, prevention of MI and urgent intervention. 
For revascularization to improve symptoms in stable ischemic heart disease, the symptoms should be refractory to medical therapy and the lesions are amenable to revascularization. This is a class 1A indication for revascularization. In patients with multivessel coronary disease, guidelines recommend angioplasty, PCI, or CABG in patients with a stable ischemic heart disease to lower the risk of spontaneous MI and urgent revascularization, and this gets a class 2A indication. But for revascularization to improve survival, here things get a bit complicated. Revascularization can improve survival in stable ischemic heart disease in four situations. Patients with left main disease, patients with multivessel disease and severe LV systolic dysfunction, EF less than 35%, patients with multivessel disease and ejection fraction 35 to 50%, whereas patients with multivessel disease and the normal ejection fraction, regardless of proximal LAD status, revascularization here was downgraded to class 2B. And this created a lot of debate. We will discuss the strength of recommendation and further detail selecting PCI and cabbage in the coming section. Revascularization for ventricular arrhythmia. For patients with ventricular fibrillation, polymorphic VT and cardiac arrest, Revascularization of significant coronary disease improves survival, and this is class 1A. Whereas in patients with sustained monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, which is mostly scar-related, revascularization is not recommended for the sole purpose of preventing recurrent ventricular tachycardia. It may be indicated for other reasons, but not for the sake of preventing recurrent ventricular tachycardia. Spontaneous coronary artery dissection. This is a condition that we call SCAD, which is getting increasing attention as a cause of stable ischemic heart disease or acute coronary syndrome. The natural history of this condition is that most dissections will heal without intervention. Therefore, medical therapy is the preferred approach in patients with stable symptoms. In patients with ongoing ischemia, vessel occlusion, or hemodynamic instability, revascularization may be necessary. However, unlike other forms of ACS, routine revascularization in patients with SCAD may not confer the same benefit. PCI wires may propagate the dissection. Balloons and stents can extend the hematoma and can lead to vessel occlusion. Even bypassing these dissected vessels is challenging and one-third of patients who get surgical grafts may have acute graft closure. Therefore, revascularization in patients with spontaneous coronary artery dissection should be taken very cautiously. Revascularization in pregnancy. Pregnant women are generally excluded from clinical trials because of concerns on the mother and the fetus safety. Therefore, there is little evidence on revascularization in this situation. However, in pregnant patients with ST elevation MI that's not caused by spontaneous coronary dissection, it's reasonable to perform primary PCI as the preferred revascularization strategy. This is class 2A. In pregnant ladies with non-ST elevation ACS, again, an invasive strategy is reasonable if medical therapy is ineffective for the management of life-threatening situations. This is also class 2A. How to manage antiplatelet agents during pregnancy? 
Low-dose aspirin is usually safe throughout pregnancy. If clopidogrel is needed, it should be used for the shortest duration possible. In a recent systematic review, the risk of clopidogrel for the mother and the fetus was acceptable. So this is good news. Revascularization before non-cardiac surgery. We encounter patients who discover their coronary disease before an elective or a semi-elective surgical procedure. Is revascularization useful to reduce perioperative myocardial infarction and death? In fact, no. There is no point in, re- in routine revascularization before non-cardiac surgery. It doesn't provide any significant benefit based on recent studies. The only exception may be patients with left main disease where there may be some benefit. Thank you for listening. I hope that the first part was useful. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe to get notifications on future episodes. See you.